Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Three guests in two segments today. Vijay Prashad will talk about China and Sinophobia, Kerala, and the crucial importance of social organization. And at the bottom of the hour, Megan Day and Michael Utrecht, authors of Bigger Than Bernie, will talk about socialism, electoralism, and where it all goes from here. Vijay Prashad is an intellectual and activist with many interests and skills. A sharp critic, he's also capable of evoking hope, which is something often in short supply for me. Born in India, Prashad went to college and graduate school in the U.S. For 20 years, he taught history and international relations at Trinity College in Hartford, where he was persecuted for being a Marxist and opponent of the Israeli government. He left academia in 2017 to head up the Tricontinental, a new hybrid think tank, publisher, and activist organization that, in its own words, is focused on stimulating intellectual debate that serves people's aspirations. Prashad is a prolific author, publishing roughly a book a year since the turn of the millennium. He writes a newsletter published by the Tricontinental, which you can subscribe to by visiting their website, thetricontinental.org. Vijay Prashad. China, there's an awful lot of uh, Sinophobia circulating here, that not just from the president, but even people uh, you think might know better are engaging in all kinds of anti-Chinese rhetoric, you know, starting with uh, the origin of the disease uh, is somehow in sick Chinese practices, and then the Chinese covered up the story for months and made things worse. Set us straight on the China angle. When the first patients arrived in uh, Hubei Hospital in Wuhan, the doctors were not sure what was going on. You know, in the early reports, and I very closely looked at all this with my colleagues, Wei An Zhu and uh, Du Xiaojun. When those first patients came in, the doctors were confounded. And the first notes that they wrote to the hospital administration called it a virus of unknown origin and a pneumonia of unknown origin. And this went on for about 10 days. The moment they discovered that this was something quite different and dangerous, they told the National Health Commission in China, this was in late December, and within six days of the first patients coming into Hubei Hospital with this particular set of symptoms, the head of China Center for Disease Control called the head of U.S. Center for Disease Control. In fact, less than a week after the first patients came in. And as the head of U.S. Center for Disease Control said, the Chinese head was crying on the phone when he was telling him what they were seeing just in Wuhan. They informed the World Health Organization right then, at the end of 2019. By the early point in 2020, the WHO declared that something was going on. They sent people in to have a look. They were in constant communication. And then they decided... Uh, in late January to declare a public emergency. Now, I want to pause for a minute, Doug, because this is very important. Ten years previously, in 2009, there was an outbreak of H1N1 in California, first in San Diego, 15-year-old boy, and then another case uh, not that far away. This particular strain of avian influenza, it's called H1N1, nobody at that time called it the American flu, that's important to point out. It was only called H1N1. Started spreading. Uh, it went to Mexico and other countries. And then the WHO, the World Health Organization, two months later declared a global pandemic. It turned out, fortunately for the world, even though 12,000 odd people died of the H1N1, it turned out that by July of uh, 2009, about two weeks or so after the WHO declared a pandemic, the virus began to dissipate and its impact was not as lethal as thought. Now, here's the problem. When the WHO declares a global pandemic, countries are obliged to buy certain kinds of medications, vaccines, and so on. It's actually a formal institutional obligation. You know, it's not just the name, oh, it's a global pandemic. They are obliged as members of the WHO and so on to do certain things. In 2009, European countries bought the requisite number of medications and so on. 
And this really annoyed a number of European parliamentarians. And in December of 2009, in the Council of Europe, about 14 of them put forward a resolution condemning the WHO for declaring the pandemic precipitously and incurring enormous costs for these countries because they had to prepare for what turned out to be not a very lethal episode. Now, the WHO since 2009 has been skittish necessarily about declaring a pandemic. In this case, there's this ridiculous idea that somehow China has pressured the WTO or taken over the WTO and suppressed any information. As I said, in late January, exactly a month after the first patients were seen in Hubei Hospital, the uh, WHO declared a global pandemic. And two months uh, later, that is on the 11th of March, the WHO declares a global pandemic. Now, this follows the timeline of the H1N1 almost exactly. And yet, there's this enormous propaganda almost suggesting not only that China suppressed the uh, emergence of this virus, what is suppression if the China CDC head calls the US CDC head in a week of, its, of the arrival of the first patients? I, I don't understand that, actually. The onus is on Marco Rubio, who first went on this tear, attacking the WHO, attacking the Chinese government, and so on. The right wing is all about the Chicoms. I mean, they, I've actually said they, they bring back this Cold War term, the Chicoms, because it's like the Chinese Communist Party in conjunction with Bill Gates and the globalist threat. It's just the, the, the nonsense that is spinning around about this stuff is just um, stunning. But it's always there's a, always a xenophobic angle, real contempt for China that um, is very disturbing. Some of this is anti-communism, certainly, but you're right to use the word sinophobia. This predates it. China has had a very interesting place in the history of the development of modern Western thinking. The first modern global pandemic was in 1832, when the cholera actually left India and came and devastated France, devastated Britain, the United States. In fact, that cholera which returned in 1848, is responsible for the public bathing movement in the U.S. That's why, you know, there was this whole business of having toilets inside the house, bathrooms, I mean, inside the house, bathing daily, bathing twice a day, pipe water. I mean, all of this comes from the cholera. And that cholera, in, interestingly, was called the Asiatic cholera. There was this whole vision of Mongol hordes riding, riding across the steppes of Eurasia, bringing this cholera. In fact, the cholera was the Mongol horde. There's French texts about this in 1832. Uh, they had, of course, a hallucination, which is that French democracy and the Caucasian race would not get an Asiatic cholera. Well, they were in for a huge surprise. In fact, that attitude, I think, persists, this notion that, well, it's something happening over there, it won't impact us. As I just said, the H1N1 didn't start in Asia, that started in California. In fact, the so-called Spanish flu started in Kansas. Nobody has ever sought to call those the American influenza or to ask the United States to pick up the bill, you know, for the millions of people who died of those avian flus. Avian flu is a serious issue. It does have to do most likely with proximity of humans and animals. But let me ask you a question. Do you think that's it's even possible for humans and animals not to have that intimate re relationship? Are human beings going to stop growing chickens for food? I don't know if that's possible. I think we are going to have to live with this. We've lived with it for 100 years. We're going to live with it further. There are serious issues of habitat loss and such, which, you know, because of capitalist abuse of the environment uh, has made this sort of natural situation far worse than it needs to be. I agree with you. That, that's true. In fact, maybe the fact that some of these newer SARS type of viruses are much more lethal. It could very well be people are making that argument. But I certainly know that this has nothing to do directly with China. In fact, all avian influencers don't emerge out of China. You know, this is a broader problem of capitalism and nature. Uh, it's a broader problem than merely China. And I think the assault on China comes for probably many reasons, but I can just maybe say two of them. One is certainly it's far easier to blame China for, for, for the kind of devastation that this virus is having in places like Italy and, and the United States and so on, then it is to blame these countries themselves. When you've gutted completely your public health systems, when you've basically run private health care in a just-in-time fashion, you know, where you treat hospital beds like real estate, 
what is a, a landlord supposed to do with an apartment? They don't keep it spare. There's no spare capacity. They want to rent every apartment out. In the same way, private hospitals have been running beds essentially like apartments. There's no surge capacity. Rather than actually sit down, look in the mirror and say, look, we really screwed this up because we don't have adequate medical funding. We don't have a public health infrastructure and so on. Rather than deal with that, it's much easier to blame China. That's one explanation. The other is, this is just a pickup from that so-called trade war, which really, I mean, I'm not even sure. Trade war, it's going to be no longer remembered. You know, the WTO has said that this particular pandemic and the way it's been handled around the world is going to see a loss in global trade volume uh, to the level of perhaps 32%. Uh, now, in the worst of the credit crisis, it, it dropped to about 12%. This whole U.S.-China business about who's going to be the biggest dog on the planet that Trump is so concerned about, obviously the attack on China is part of that as well. There's a striking contrast in state capacity between well, the U.S. and Britain, you know, these, the, the headquarters of modern neoliberalism, who have had a really terrible uh, response at the state level, uh, with uh, a lot of the Asian countries, China, Taiwan, South Korea, whose states have responded with much more competence uh, and contained the virus much more quickly. It, it's just a striking contrast to see that uh, we have a hard time doing anything anymore because of the you know this anti-public sector um, ideology uh, and practice has just stripped us of any administrative capacity to react. Well, one is that. One is that the state is essentially relatively hollowed out on the social side. There's a lot of stories about the decline in funding for public health in particular, the uh, insistence that everything in the healthcare field should be in the private sector. When you see some place like China where the government has the resources, or at least it has the commitment to divert resources towards healthcare. Uh, I mean, Xi Jinping, in one of the early speeches he made, very important speech, he said that the well-being of the population is the most important thing. He said, we're going to try to ensure that China's growth rate doesn't decline too much, but the well-being of the population is central. I think that's a very important statement. You know, when people have this, what I think of as a ridiculous debate, you know, highly abstract debate, is China socialist or capitalist? I'm not keen on that debate at that level. I think it's too abstract. But certainly, Xi's response public statements that he's made, if you put them side by side with Trump, for instance, or even Emmanuel Macron's recent interview in the Financial Times, uh, you see that there's a gulf between the two. Macron, who's in a sense the most, let's say, liberal of these Western leaders or leaders of the bourgeois order, you know, the headline of the Financial Times interview was fantastic. The headline is thinking the unthinkable because the unthinkable is socialism. Now we have to think about the unthinkable. It's something that we have to think about, which is the well-being of people. But that's only half of the story. The other half is public action. In a country like the United States, very sensitive, decent people are out there doing what is known as mutual aid, you know, helping other people, feeding the homeless, and so on. But it's very few, very sensitive people often trying desperately to organize themselves against uh, the tide. But in a place like China or in Kerala, where public action is already something that people have prepared in not a time of crisis, you know, trade unions exist, neighborhood associations exist, youth movements exist and so on. Uh, people can immediately know how to volunteer because the organizations are ready. In Guangdong, in one place in China, 440,000 volunteers came out. We're not talking about six decent people. 440,000. Kerala, for instance, up and down this very small part of India, which has a population of 35 million, about 17 million women, there's a cooperative movement called Kudumbushri, which has four and a half million members. So now out of 17 million women in Kerala, four and a half million of them belong to this cooperative. The moment the health minister, K.K. Shailja teacher, said that we need to act, Kudumbushri, its membership immediately went into gear, started making masks, started making hand, hand sanitizer, and they started producing food packets. Because this is what they know how to do, Doug. Public action has to be cultivated. It just doesn't just appear out of thin air. You've got a city like New York, excellent people, lovely people, but they're not organized. And I'm not talking about organized by the state. They're not organized socially adequately enough you know, at this scale. 
So these socialistic societies, we see something quite different. Public action is an enormous feature. In China, it's not just the state, it's the neighborhood committees. I'm speaking with Vijay Prashad, director of the Tricontinental, a multinational think tank publisher and activist forum. You mentioned Kerala, so let's talk a bit more about that. Give some ba- historical background on, on Kerala's uh, political history. I mean, this is a, a poor place that nonetheless has achieved high levels of social development. How did they do it? Well, the first thing to uh, say is that Kerala is, you know, as I said, 35 million people today. It's in the southwest part of India. It has a long history in the 19th century of social reform movements, which prepared the way essentially for its 20th century and 21st century developments. The first elected government in Kerala in 1957 was a communist government. So you see immediately that the communists are already rooted in Kerala society. Uh, They emerge out of the socialist movement, out of the social reform movement. And when EMS Nambudripad becomes the first chief minister in 57, he drives an agenda for land reform and also the production of cooperatives. You know, this is one of the least remarked parts of Marx's own writings. At one point in Marx's writings, he's reflecting on cooperatives. And he says cooperatives are a form of possible communism. It's a very lyrical section. You know, he's actually written about cooperatives a lot across his writings. He reflects on this. He's trying to think, he understands that in when the Paris Commune takes place, the Paris Commune itself produces a new understanding of how politics can be organized. But the cooperative is the production side of a new form of uh, society. The commune is merely a political form. It, it doesn't itself reflect anything in the production of goods and and services and so on. Those writings had a big impact in India, the idea of cooperatives. So Kerala, from the very earliest part of its political, modern political period in the 50s, encouraged cooperatives. There was a very important construction workers cooperative setup, where the construction workers were the ones who would go and build things. It wasn't to deliver construction workers to real estate company, you know, like a labor service. No, no. They actually formed a construction cooperative for workers to build things on their own and to control what was going on. This has been a feature of Kerala's life. Also, the left has not governed Kerala from 1957 till now. In fact, generally what happens is the left governs for one term and then the right governs for one term. The center right governs for one term. Then the left comes back. And that's how it's been since 1957. So the left is highly rooted in that society. And that's why I want to emphasize, it's not just about the government in Kerala that's important, the state government. Although now it's a very popular state government led by the chief minister, Pinarayi Vijayan. That's true that the left is in power in the government and therefore is able to mobilize some of the state's resources. But for me, the most remarkable thing about Kerala is public action. Again, I, I gave you the story of Kudumbushri, but there are millions of these stories. The trade unions came immediately at the beginning. In, in This is, in I think, in late February. Trade unions showed up and said, in every bus stand, we are going to come in and we're going to erect sinks so that people getting off buses can wash their hands. So this was not done by the state. This was not done by private capital. This was not done by some foundations and donors, nothing. Trade unions came and they built sinks for people to wash their hands. When the government said there's going to be a lockdown, in every single local self-government area, like imagine a municipality, a youth movement, trade unions, women's organizations came in and set up public kitchens with the state. State was very much part of it. See, because the... Communist government in Kerala took the view that transferring cash in the time of an emergency is a risky business because two problems can occur. One is you give people cash, they will bid up price of food if the supply chain is not working well enough and you'll get food inflation. Second problem is the uh, retailers may start hoarding goods because they are waiting for prices to go up and so on. So this is not going to be able to feed people, much better feed people directly. Decommodify relief, in other words. They built community kitchens across the state, and either you come and get, get the food or it will be delivered. Now, who does the delivery? It's not the state. It's the youth organizations. So absent a society which has incubated and cultivated public action, in a time of emergency, you're paralyzed. 
you know you rely on either the private sector or you rely on the state uh, but that's not enough uh, you have to have a society where you have something different so that's the reason why the chief minister he rejected the slogan of social distancing and he said no that's the wrong slogan it sends the wrong message the slogan that the government of kerala has taken is physical distancing social solidarity i think that's a really interesting distinction between what a socialist kind of world is doing and what the bourgeois order is doing what do you think this crisis is going to do to the bourgeois order over the longer term is there anything good that could come out of this it's very difficult to say uh, one thing we do know is that we should never underestimate the power of capitalism to reinvent itself I, i'm not keen on the sky is falling and you know something new will come just because of that i mean one of the worst problems in the north atlantic states in particular has been that the crisis of this order has been there for decades but there is no political or the subjective factor is limited there is no political challenge to it in the united states it was heartening to see the sanders campaign but it's actually not really created a movement and i was disappointed in the way bernie sanders withdrew from this race it was literally it's the old eliot line you know not with a bang but with a whimper i don't know what movement was created out of it it's not clear to me you know what's going to happen i mean platform capitalism is already basically understood that it is already teaching people over these weeks why do you need to go to the shop just order online it's going to be a nightmare scenario unless we are able to refashion the politics of it why do you need to go to even a small shop down the road 5 minute walk just order it online so much more convenient and i fear that they will be prepared to pivot and defend themselves sure 10 trillion dollars sitting in the wings to defend the markets bailouts for companies all of this on the agenda underneath that people are i think a little perplexed if not just plain angry but i think genuinely perplexed about the fact that the healthcare system has collapsed this is an enormous opportunity if there was a sufficient subjective factor you know if there was political organizations capable of not only making an argument against the system but making an argument for something else that in the north atlantic is very lacking you know let's just think about intellectuals intellectuals in the north atlantic are excellent at attacking neoliberalism or whatever excellent but they stop short of saying that we have an alternative i don't know what that is you know is it reticence to adopt a socialist agenda is it lack of certainty about the future whatever it is if you keep attacking a system without offering an alternative you end up with a cynical group of people on the left to my mind left cynicism is just depressing But there's been a real constriction uh, of imagination and ambition on the political left. Uh, people just don't have the vision for a, a comprehensively different future. What's wrong with what Bernie was saying? Bernie's agenda is a great agenda. Uh, let's build on it. Uh, nothing wrong with it. Medicare for all, whatever that means, it means some public health care. It may be limited here and there, but on balance, he's saying public health care. He's saying public education. he's saying public this public that we're talking about public goods again now we have to deepen the conversation we have to talk about decommodification you know i don't want to have to earn money to buy something not these things we don't need to buy education we don't need to buy healthcare why can't the subway system be a public trust where we just get into the subway get off the subway why do you have to buy it why do we commodify transportation like that what was wrong with what bernie was saying it was the opening of a dialogue the agenda is available we need to build a political force behind that agenda i'm telling you i was totally sympathetic with all of the rhetoric this is our revolution oh not me so you willing to fight for somebody yeah. you don't know right. that was beautiful evocation of solidarity which is sadly missing in american life that's an amazing line you know the bernie agenda this year i thought everything on the table the program on the table excellent very good beginning very important program deepen the claim for increasing decommodified life increase the claim for the public sector perfect secondly i like that idea you know not me us are you willing to fight for somebody you don't know that's an important attitude but remember what that sentence is which you just said are you willing to fight for somebody you know are you in fact it's are we willing to fight for somebody we don't know and the we is an organization 
and an organization should not be sectarian. These are the kind of cultural things that the left in the West has forgotten. When we have a communist movement in Kerala, when you have mass organizations, youth organizations, these are not sectarian groups. A mass organization is not intended to follow strictly some narrow line. A political organization should have a line, but every political organization should have genuine mass organizations with millions of people. Kudumbushri, for instance, four and a half million women, it doesn't have to adhere to some narrow organizational strictures. The point is to get people involved in society. That's what the left in the North Atlantic world needs to learn. It's not about winning elections. It's a long project, 10, 15, 20, 30 year project of reshaping the culture. I think that's got to be the attitude. I was Vijay Prashad, director of the Tricontinental, a multinational think tank and publisher. You can find it on the web at thetricontinental.org, thetricontinental.org. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, ye prisoners of want. For reason and revolt now thunders, and at last ends the age of Kant. Away with all your superstition, servile masses arise, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition, we'll spun the dust to win the prize. Ah, so comrades, come rally, and the last vital at us best. The internationally unites the human race. Us of comrades, come rally, and the last fight let us face. The internationally unites the human race. How some of the internationally performed by Alastair Hewlett. Next, Bernie and Beyond. Many of us were inspired by Bernie Sanders' two campaigns for the presidency and were deflated by what seemed like an abrupt and anticlimactic withdrawal. A whimper, not a bang, as we heard Vijay Prashad say. But how deflated should we feel? Here are Megan Day and Michael Utrecht to counsel us. Day and Utrecht are on the staff of Jacobin Magazine and are the authors of Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism, published last month by Verso. The book lives up to the promise of the subtitle. It's not a campaign bio. Rather, it views the Sanders phenomenon as an important part of the struggle for a more humane political and economic order. Megan Day and Michael Utrecht. Let me start uh, with the inevitable question. Uh, How down are you uh, about Bernie's withdrawal and his prompt endorsement of Biden, which, though never a surprise, he said he was going to do it all along. But it did seem a little quick and uh, without much in return. So what's your state of mind about all that now? Well, Micah and I have... uh entered a series of negotiations ourselves. I've been pretty down and Mike has been cheering me up on a regular basis. He's been doing a pretty good job at it. I think the thing that's actually bumming me out more is not the endorsement of Biden because I had come to terms with that a while back. I mean, he did say that he was going to do it. He did it in 2016. And as far as why that doesn't bother me so much, the idea that he should have waited longer to wring concessions out of Biden does sort of assume that if Biden were to grant concessions, they would mean anything. And I think that's a bit naive. So I'm not really holding my breath for Biden to, like, for example, change his platform to be more to include left demands. I mean, even if he did that, he, it's not like he would run on them. And it's certainly not like he would implement them. So I'm not really that concerned about it. You know, I think Bernie Sanders just decided to rip off the Band-Aid. But certainly I've been a bit gloomy about Bernie Sanders no longer running for president because I came into the socialist movement because of Bernie's 2016 run. And so therefore have never been a, a serious organized socialist without the possibility of a Bernie Sanders presidency. And it really does feel like a shift from BC to AD. We're in a different timeline now and it takes some some adjusting. But Mike has been um, cheering me up by reminding me what it was like on the left prior to Bernie Sanders running for president. <laughs> well, I remember that very well. But Mike, cheer me up too. Doug, you know, the, the, the bad old days where like a successful left event would be like, you know, double digits people showing up. And now we've got thousands of people who, you know, before the pandemic were showing up to 
rallies. We have uh, millions of people who cast a vote for Bernie both this time and in 2016. We have the polls moving in the correct direction in terms of uh, embracing social democratic agenda. And we try to be sober about what we're up against. I mean, obviously, we're, we've, we've just been dealt a horrible loss. Uh, and we our, our numbers and our, our overall you know left forces are still very weak. But in some ways, we've achieved the most important thing, which is the foundation upon which all of American politics rests, which is the getting rid of this idea that there is no alternative. We've always been told our whole lives that Americans will never go for this socialism stuff. They'll never go for class struggle. It's something in our DNA. We're all temporarily embarrassed millionaires. We're all petty capitalists at heart. And we've seen through his two campaigns that uh, that is not the case, that people are actually responsive to a left-wing agenda if it's pitched in the right way, which is a very good place to start from for us. And we've been given a, you know, a, a reborn socialist movement as well as a, a you know, reinvigorated broader left to uh, work with to achieve those things. So there are much worse positions that we could be in right now. We were in a much worse position five years ago before Bernie's first campaign. And uh, I feel cautiously optimistic about our ability to build on everything that we now have in our hands uh, in the years to come. Now, there are lots of calls uh, for uh, Bernie supporters to reflect on why he failed. I find this a bit annoying, given all the structural impediments to socialist politics in the U.S., but I'm sure there's some listeners who want to hear you or watch you jump through those hoops. So any any <laughs> any mea culpas you want to heap upon ourselves? Well, I mean, I agree with you, Doug. Like, there was an article that came out yesterday, right, in Jacobin, right, Micah? Uh, yeah. It's written by Hadass Thier and Paul Heidemann, and it is basically making the point, which I hope people will go look it up and read it, that the emphasis on self-inflicted wounds, it, that might work for an ordinary presidential campaign, but ordinarily, of course, we don't have somebody who's running to upend and transform the institution's uh, of power that are then resisting with all of their might and are actually responsible for they're in charge of everything. We can reflect on what we think the Bernie Sanders campaign might have done differently. The one that's most compelling to me is the idea that perhaps he should have gone harder on, on Biden. Like, I think that's worth a discussion. And, you know, we could talk about whether or not the media would have let him get away with it, whether it was possible for him to be able to circumvent the media uh, by doing it and so on and so forth. But ultimately, I'm not, I don't think that's the reason why Bernie Sanders lost. There's a difference between an interesting and noteworthy dynamic that we should discuss and reflect on and a reason that Bernie Sanders lost. I think the reason Bernie Sanders lost is because the left has been extremely marginal in American politics for half a century. And we don't have the institutions that we need to combat the institutions that our opponents have built up, which are in fact very powerful. Even if they're bumbling and we think that they're staffed by idiots, they are, they are still quite powerful. And we were, we were simply outmatched. It's not that we fumbled per se, even if maybe there were mistakes made along the way, it's that we were outmatched. We This was a structure test for the left to see if our power could match their power. And it wasn't possible for us to do that. And frankly, I think that we would have been shocked if it, we were in fact capable of uh, overtaking them. Like when it seemed like Bernie Sanders could actually pull this thing off, everyone that I know who has been thinking about politics 24-7 for either the last few years, the last few decades, was just walking around with their jaw on the floor. Seriously, the left is going to pull this off. So and Micah says this, and he'll reiterate this, we should be pausing to reflect on how incredible it is at all that Bernie Sanders got even remotely close to being the nominee of the Democratic Party, the, the world's second most enthusiastic party of, of capital. <laughs> that was how I like that quote. Well, that brings me to another question, uh, that vexed relationship with the Democratic Party. We could have the, the chorus of Trotsky is chanting, break with the Dems, break with the Dems. Um, but the paradox seems to me that Sanders would have gotten nowhere running as a third party, but then he right. lost and ended up endorsing Hillary and Biden, who are both exactly the wrong kinds of Democrats. Uh, how do we sort this out, this relation with the Democratic Party, and both as an opportunity, but as a snare. The Democrats came on out on top in both 2016 and 2020, the Democratic establishment in getting Hillary and now Biden. But I have to wonder long term if that's a kind of Perrick victory, because especially for young people who are engaging in politics for the first time in their lives, maybe this is the first election they were fully invested in. 
for them to see the party do everything that it did to try to destroy this guy who was not arguing for the dictatorship of the proletariat. He was arguing for some pretty basic social democratic policies that exist in other wealthy countries around the world. A lot of people must have a lot of questions about that party right now. Like, what, what, what does it mean that this is what this party does in response to uh, the proposal of some, some really uh, tepid social democratic uh, reforms? And who knows what that will end up resulting in. I mean, the party is able to do this because it does have this enormous institutional power, uh, both within the party itself, and it has the stranglehold on basically left of center politics uh, in the United States. And it has all these allies in the media that, that ally with it and everything else that we that we saw in this uh, election. But I feel like they had to uh, really do some serious damage to themselves in order to win these battles. We write in the book about this question that has long vexed the left, of course, which is what to do with the Democratic Party, what to do with the country and the world's uh, most second most enthusiastic party of capital. Bernie showed one possible scenario, which is, you know, he's someone who has been an independent from the party his entire career. He's never actually joined, whatever that means, but he's never been a Democrat. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point to make. I mean, it's not a party in the sense that you can join it or have any influence over its internal deliberations. Yes, but he is very co uh, cognizantly always said, you know, I am not a Democrat. I'm, I'm independent. He's even if you read his old memoirs, he talks about the need for a labor party uh, in this country or some other kind of third party. So he maintained this level of independence from the party, but used it uh, for the purpose of gaining the kind of attention that he did get, the kind of attention that he never would have gotten if he had launched a, a third party candidacy. And in so doing, seemed to have really weakened the Democratic Party, hopefully for the long term. I mean, he showed uh, how craven these people are, are how they are connected to uh, really, uh, you know, the interests of capital. And he helped, as I, as I mentioned, raised a lot of doubts about this party, the supposed left party, uh, the opposition party in this country, in the minds of millions of people. We argue in the book for what others have articulated in the in, in Jacobin, uh, people like Eric Blanc, for a kind of dirty break strategy, which is, you know, avoiding the pitfalls of just cleanly breaking with the Democrats where you launch a third party bid that goes nowhere or just going into the Democratic Party because it's the only game in town, uh, we argue for the, the dirty break strategy, which is essentially a, a passage uh, beyond the Democratic Party that goes uh, through the Democratic Party, that uses elections in the way that someone like Bernie has, in, in such a way that kind of heightened the contradictions, if you will, uh, within the Democratic Party uh, and, and shows them to be the, the, the you know, really uh, uh, politically and morally bankrupt party that they are with the hopes that someday being able to create an alternative uh, to that party, not knowing exactly when that's going to be. It's the same crew of nattering trots will say uh, that this and other people will say this as well, that electoral politics is, is a distraction from real organizing, real politics. Obviously, you don't agree with that. But what about that relation between uh, the, the electoral and the non-electoral? Well, it's hard for me to uh, look back at the last five years and make that case, honestly. Like, we look at the, the two Bernie campaigns, and can anyone really say that the level of class struggle in this country has been dampened by the Bernie Sanders campaigns? I think the contrary is true. Sanders has uh, helped stoke class struggle, you know, whether it's through key organizers of the teachers strike wave in uh, 2018, whether it's we had a guy who was a credible candidate for president saying things like if there's going to be class warfare in this country, it's about time the working class won that war. And he used his campaign infrastructure to turn out his supporters to strikes and pickets, you know, uh, workers when they're on strike or immigrant rights protests. Whenever the, when those were happening, he used his campaign infrastructure to tell people to go join them. So people who would pretend that somehow this is a, a clean choice between social movement organizing or electoral politics, and that the choice to engage in the latter through the Bernie Sanders campaign resulted in a uh, weakening of the former, I just think that is a perspective that is not really rooted in reality. That was the voice of Michael Utrecht, co-author of Bigger Than Bernie, published by Verso. And now the other co-author, Megan Day, will speak. It's not. I agree with Micah. It's like the idea that somehow we've we forewent opportunities to do non-electoral organizing because we put a lot of energy into the Bernie Sanders campaigns is, I think, very false. For one for one thing, in between the Bernie Sanders campaigns, here's what I saw happen. 
I and tens of thousands of other people joined, for example, the Democratic Socialists of America, which then proceeded to uh, transform people from socialist sympathizers into socialist cadre, and then to use those serious socialists to organize broader and broader layers of people to engage in projects as varied as other electoral campaigns for down-ballot races, to non-electoral work ranging from housing justice work to strike solidarity work. I mean, the labor solidarity stuff that you've seen in DSA between the Bernie elections was incredible. It was some of the most high volume labor solidarity work that has happened. And it happened at a perfect time. It happened during the teacher's strike wave. And of course, we know that the teacher's strike wave was in many ways bore the marks of the Bernie Sanders campaign. It wasn't like completely overdetermined by the Bernie Sanders campaign, but there was there were certainly leaders in several states who will tell you flat out, you can go talk to them, that they were inspired by and galvanized by Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. So the level of class struggle in general actually was more was intensified between the two Bernie Sanders campaigns by his first campaign. And so then we decided seeing this great success of that and a lot of us knowing in our bones how successful it was because we are products of that, myself very much included, decided to go all in on Bernie 2020. And I think you'll see much the same phenomenon coming out of it. I I personally believe that for years to come, wherever there is extra parliamentary working class organizing happening on a non-strictly shop-by-shop level, like when, when it has the sort of interests of the broader working class at heart, you will find people who are actively organizing, who were serious Bernie Sanders supporters or who had their minds exploded by Bernie Sanders and will and will tell you so. Even now, like it's been what? It's been weeks. I mean, like, you know, the corpse of Bernie 2020 is still is is still warm. Um, <laughs> we're already seeing that DSA members, there's this project called the Emergency Workers Organizing Committee, which is worth thinking about. It is a project of DSA members and United Electrical Workers Union. So they have partnered together to reach out to non-union workers who are experiencing pandemic-related workplace issues because they don't have time to form a union, but they need to be organizing in their workplace to connect them with the logistical support they need to intensify and organize that naturally occurring class conflict into class struggle, right? And I was talking to somebody from UE about this project, and he was just saying that there's this vast reserve of volunteer labor, able uh, volunteer labor, able to help them do things like this that didn't exist before. And that is the left. And the left, DSA in particular, in this case, has grown enormously because of Bernie Sanders. A lot of people who are involved in that project came into DSA because of Bernie Sanders. And now they're available to do this kind of extra parliamentary, extra electoral organizing. So yeah, no, they're not separate from each other. They feed off of each other. And I think that we'll be seeing the positive effects of that for a long time to come. There's a critique of Bernie as well as of people in DSA that it's just a bunch of soft, naive social Democrats. Uh, now, you read in the book about how the that social democracy is just not enough. You really are socialists. So to talk about that relationship between that kind of reformist social democratic approach and uh, something like real socialism, whatever exactly that means. Bernie Sanders, in the election, his principal policies that he was running on were what? Uh, Medicare for all, uh, free public college for all. Yeah, these are the kind of soft social democratic uh, demands, although ones that I must say uh, that would greatly transform many of our lives, mine included. But his path towards winning those demands was not one that is about tamping down class struggle in the United States. On the contrary, he saw a class struggle road towards winning those demands. This is what our uh, our boss, Bhaskar Sankara, has called class struggle social democracy. He sees the path towards winning the, those kind of demands as, as having to go through class struggle, right? This is what he said over and over, the not me, us slogan of the campaign, that that kind of bigger movement building uh, was essential to win anything. Uh, and that the obvious hope is not just to win those things and then call it quits, but then to be able to use that uh, energized, active working class to fight for things that are much broader than those kind of uh, those kind of demands. Also, whenever we, we talk about have this conversation in the United States, we don't have much social democracy here right now. I would love a, just a little bit of soft social democracy. Like that would really be transformational for a lot of people. It would be great to have some soft social democracy 
in a country where uh, social democratic uh, policies have all been 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 all but scrubbed from the land. Um, that, that's nothing to sneeze at at a time when there's so many people in this country and so much misery. Well, no, the ruling class understands too that if you start yielding, granting such reforms, that people want more. Um, so they're really afraid of it. They want to you know, just tap it down from the start. Sure. I also think that you know, it's. It's certainly we're not the first person, we're not the first people in the history of socialism to latch onto the idea that the struggle for reforms is how you consolidate your forces, it's how you train them up for future struggles. Um, the reformism doesn't refer to a desire to pass reforms. Reformism refers to the idea that you can achieve the society that you want by stacking up reforms on top of each other until you've eventually built that society piecemeal. So we're not reformists in that sense. There's a sort of like underlying class conflict that may uh, result in a situation where there needs to be like a great sort of final boss fight, if you will. But until then, right, the struggle for reforms is, is extraordinarily important because if it's done in the right way, if it's done in a way, for example, that polarizes along lines of class and unifies among the working class and that builds a sort of institutional ecosystem and builds people's confidence level, then you are actually training yourself up for whatever that final final boss fight actually looks like. And that if you weren't to do that, then you would have no hope whatsoever of any sort of revolutionary rupture or whatever people talk about wanting to do instead of fight for reforms, right? So it's also worth remembering that, like like I said, we're not the first people to latch onto this. If you read Rosa Luxemburg, that she makes this extremely clear that that while she's obviously the, great, the greatest proponent of, of a revolutionary rupture, that the struggle for reforms is utterly necessary. And then you look back even to like Marx and the International Working Men's Association and what did they go all in for? They went all in for the eight-hour day. Well, we know that the eight-hour day is not the abolition of wage slavery, which was what Marx and the International Working Men's Association were advocating, but the, it is it actually worked out quite as they had predicted. The struggle for the eight-hour day was the means by which the nascent labor movement was able to consolidate itself, develop a political identity, develop a political vocabulary, introduce people to each other in struggle and transform them into new kinds of people, a class for itself, a class that actually fights on its own behalf. Um, once once that class gets used to that, to thinking of itself that way and behaving that way, I mean, the, the, the possibilities multiply. Okay, and then finally, um, obviously, uh, what does um, your, your book appeared uh, amidst a health and uh, economic crisis of great magnitude. What does the the beyond Bernie or bigger than Bernie movement have to say about this particular uh, conjuncture, which is terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that none of us really have the full answer to this question because none of us have ever seen something like this uh, before. But I think in the beginning weeks and months of this crisis, we've seen what it looks like when the uh, you know the the defenders of the status quo are at the helm of the coronavirus pandemic response. It's really weak provisions for average working class people. It's more and more giveaways to corporations, uh, and so the class struggle that the Bernie Sanders campaign was kind of cultivating, uh, and and the basic ideas about the social democratic responses. Uh, to the crises that already existed in American society before the pandemic hit uh, are now more important than ever. I mean, we, we have to continue to be really to the barricades demanding that we get some a better response to this pandemic than, than what we've gotten, that we get, uh, you know, better uh, UBI type uh, provisions that workers who are on the front lines be taken care of uh, better, that they not be put in harm's way. Uh, in many ways, the, the movement that ha- we want to see come out of the Bernie campaign is more important than ever, given that its success or failure uh, will mean the difference uh, between hundreds of thousands more, potentially millions of people more dying uh, or people being unable to make their rent or uh, you know, catch, catching coronavirus at work and not having those things. So uh, it's it's a really dire time for that kind of uh, agenda that Bernie was putting forward to be fought for. If we don't do it, uh, the the and we don't win some of it, the outcome will be extremely bleak. Yeah, it seems that uh, the proposals that months ago seemed dreamy uh, and impractical. I don't know, she seemed quite sensible <laughs> and practical uh, as a way just to get out of this, uh, both the health and economic disaster we're in. I mean, I even saw people who were visibly hostile to Bernie Sanders's campaign remarking on how ludicrous it is that we tether 
health insurance to employment, resulting in a situation where if there was a public health crisis that caused mass unemployment, then there would be a lot of newly uninsured people in the middle of a public health crisis. It's ludicrous. Everyone can see that it's ludicrous. And some people are even remarking on this who themselves were saying literally just weeks ago that Bernie Sanders' pie in the sky is promising free ponies to everybody and we have to be realistic and so on. So I think that on that level, it exposes... Uh, the superior wisdom of the platform that we've been advocating and that Bernie Sanders has advanced. But there's also a danger, which is that despair itself can be conservatizing. So it, on the one hand, we have a situation where the cracks in the system are being exposed for all to see. And, and it's possible to sort of make our case, to argue our case in the arena of ideas. And we have a leg up there. On the other hand, materially speaking, people are being plunged into great insecurity. And what do people want most when they're insecure? They want security. They want security back, even if it wasn't particularly secure to begin with. And uh, that can be exploited by our ideological opponents, even if we're doing an excellent job making our case elsewhere in other in other arenas, in other corners of society. So I think it's, it's a dicey time and we don't really know how it's going to turn out. And one thing that's also really frustrating is that because there's this, these shelter in place orders, it's it's very difficult to organize in the way that we have become accustomed to, especially over the last few years. There's been or organizing infrastructure that's been built up, and it's not been destroyed. I mean, I'm on an endless stream of Zoom calls. People are organizing, but it's the energy is different, and you can imagine that people will sort of dissipate who might otherwise have gotten stuck into the movement in this moment, and it's also very hard to protest or to apply pressure. So there are some pros and cons, and honestly, I don't think anybody knows how this is going to turn out. We just know what needs to happen, which is what has always needed to happen. Those are Megan Day and Michael Utrecht, co-authors of Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go from the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism, published last month by Verso. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another version of the Internationale, this by Stefan Grappelli, rather different from Hewlett's we heard earlier. Till next week, bye.